Welcome everybody to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dali Jurgensen. And I'm Finn Arne Jurgensen. And we're happy to welcome today Michelle Nyehaus, who is an editor at The Atlantic and an award-winning journalist. And we're very excited to have Michelle here today to talk about her book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction, which came out with W.W. Norton in 2021. So we'll give it over to you, Michelle, to introduce us to the book. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Dolly and Finn, for having me. Um, thanks to everyone for joining in today. I'm on the west coast of the US. So for most of you, hello from the recent past. <laughs> um, I am a strong believer in the importance of the environmental humanities for reasons I'll mention in a minute. So I'm it's a particular pleasure to take part in this really wonderful series and it seems like a thriving community. So I came to this project as a journalist, but I came to the history of conservation uh, much earlier, uh, shortly after studying biology at university, uh, when I spent several seasons as a field biologist working on wildlife research projects in the, in the desert Southwest. Um, and these projects not only immersed me in, in remarkable landscapes, but immersed me uh, for better or worse in, in the often vicious and, and polarized politics surrounding federally protected species in the rural US West. And just as an aside, some of the most outspoken opponents of endangered species protection in these, in these local fights, this was in the mid 1990s, went on to more widely promote extremism in the region and, and some of them played a, a direct role in the January 6th insurrection at the US Capitol. So these local conservation battles certainly influenced and were influenced by their larger political and cultural context and, and similar battles of course continue today. So when I was working as a biologist, I was struck not only by the bitterness of these conservation fights, but by how little common ground there seemed to be even among people who were ostensibly on the same side, uh, what it meant to protect another species and its habitat, why that was important, who was responsible for doing so. These very basic questions were all up for debate and the debate never seemed to progress. So when I became a journalist and began to write about conservation throughout the US West and beyond, I came to think that some of this fundamental confusion had to do with the history of the modern conservation movement and how that history is usually presented to students and, and the general public, if it's presented at all. Uh, as a biologist in training, I had learned about a few key figures, John Muir, Rachel Carson, but I had very little sense of how the movement had developed or what had been learned along the way. Uh, and I'd also come to understand that the history of conservation was, was deeply troubled by, by racism and colonialism, but I did not have a strong sense that these problems were systemic or, or how they might be overcome. So this is one of the several reasons I am a supporter of the environmental humanities. I, they were left out of my own curriculum as, as a science student, and I, I've since come to understand just how much I, I missed. So with, with this in mind, I thought it might be helpful in some way to attempt to recount the history of the modern conservation movement in, in a form that would be accessible to a popular audience. Uh, I wanted to show how the movement 
has evolved over time, what it's accomplished, what it's overlooked, and how it might move forward, especially in this time of intersecting global crises. I knew I would not be able to write a complete history. Of course, no one could, uh, but I hoped I could capture the movement's most significant ideas and turning points. Now, had I known how difficult this would be, I might never have undertaken it. <laughs> Fortunately, I had some of the innocence of the amateur going for me. Uh, I also had journalism experience, which had taught me many bad habits, which I'm happy to discuss later on, uh, but a few good ones. And among the good ones were research skills. I, I had some experience with archival work as well as with interviewing and field reporting. And as a science journalist in particular, I had a lot of experience translating complex subjects into language that was not only understandable, but interesting to non-specialists. Um, we journalists are constantly and painfully reminded that our work is not required reading. So I knew how to distinguish precision from accuracy uh, and how to preserve the latter while sacrificing some of the former in the interest of clarity. I also knew something about embedding ideas into narratives, which proved very useful in this project. Before I could do any of that, I had to decide where to start. Uh, since my aim was to write a critical history of the existing power structure and conservation, I first had to distinguish the quote unquote modern conservation movement, an imperfect term to be sure, from the kinds of conservation that human communities have been practicing at a local level for millennia, often with great success. I defined modern conservationists as those who seek to protect species they do not necessarily live alongside or depend on directly for survival, but whose fates they nevertheless affect via their consumer and political decisions. So when did this modern conservation movement begin? There are of course many possible answers, but I decided to begin with the popular realization in Europe and North America that species could be driven globally extinct by human activities. Extinction of any kind was thought to be impossible until the very end of the 18th century and Europeans did not become broadly aware that humans could drive entire species extinct until the mid to late 1800s after Darwin published on the origin of species. The extinction of the great auk in the North Atlantic followed by the near extinction of the American bison and the extinction of the passenger pigeon in North America inspired the earliest efforts that to my mind fit the definition of modern conservation. I structured the book around about a dozen people who I saw as representative of the major turning points of the conservation movement. Some like Aldo Leopold and Rachel Carson were already conservation icons and I wanted to bring them down to earth, so to speak, to show that they were not in fact lone geniuses, but geniuses who were part of a movement. Uh, others were not widely known even to professional conservationists, but had quietly or, or not so quietly embraced transformative ideas. New York suffragist Rosalie Edge, for instance, whose conservation activism began in the 1930s was an early champion of the idea that conservationists had to fight for the protection of all species not just the species they happen to like. And, and she was just she was also an early articulator of some of the principles of ecology, um, even though she was not a scientist herself. None of the people I chose was perfect. Uh, some had terrible flaws. For example, William Hornaday, who was instrumental in the rescue of the American bison from extinction was an unrepentant racist and nationalist. 
So I knew my book would be largely a work of synthesis, not original scholarship, but I, I did want it to play well with more academic work. So I, I went to archival and other primary sources whenever possible. I also did quite a bit of field reporting before the pandemic with the goal of bringing long ago events and, and perhaps unfamiliar places to life for general readers. So after having immersed myself in the lives of my chosen subjects in the work of their many allies and rivals and in the patterns revealed by their combined efforts, uh, I feel qualified to at least propose a few generalizations. Uh, I would argue that the modern conservation movement has had several successes. Firstly, it succeeded in raising popular awareness of and concern for threatened species and habitats worldwide. Secondly, it succeeded in creating international institutions that, that while flawed are, are capable of working on ecological scales, that is across political boundaries, which as we know, uh, we are the only species that obey those. <laughs> Thirdly, it has succeeded in incorporating the lessons of ecology and, and conservation biology, both of which have deeply informed the work of conservation over the course of the 20th century. Now, we could talk for a very long time about the ways in which the conservation movement has failed, and perhaps we can do so um, during this hour, but I see two especially damaging systemic failures. Uh, the first is intertwined with conservation's origins among elite, white, largely North American sportsmen. And it is a consistent distrust of the ability of people to care for the species they live alongside and perhaps depend on for sustenance, which is of course ironic, tragically so, because as I mentioned earlier, traditional forms of conservation predate the modern conservation movement by thousands of years. And I should say that while this bias is very common within the conservation movement continues to be so, it is far from universal, Aldo Leopold, and his intellectual descendants are among the notable exceptions. So this elitism often amplified by racism and colonialism has led to some of the conservation movement's most notorious abuses, particularly the displacement and deprivation of indigenous and other rural communities during the establishment of parks and reserves in the global south that continues today. I would argue that the exploitation of these prejudices, that the the characterization of these prejudices by corporate interest in North America is at least partially responsible for the political polarization of conservation in the US and elsewhere that began in the mid 20th century that led to the popular uh, portrayal of it as, as jobs versus the environment or jobs versus owls as it was here in the, in the Pacific Northwest. The second systemic failure uh, related to the first that I see it is an overly biological view of our own species. Um, and this is where you come in. Uh, most professional conservationists have a background in science um, with the result that the conservation movement knows a, a lot about what other species survive. I think that's one of its greatest accomplishments, how much space, what kinds of food and shelter species need. Um, it knows much, much less about how human societies can best meet those needs, how humans, in other words, can play a positive as well as a destructive role in their home ecosystems um, and hopefully transition to an entirely positive role. As humanities scholars, you know all too well that conservation is a human problem. Um, it needs to be 
it needs to be executed by humans, which means successful conservation requires a deep understanding of the complexity of humans and human societies. Uh, but the modern conservation movement, um, from what I've seen throughout its history, has been very slow to incorporate the expertise of social sciences and humanity scholars. Even today, those are in many cases an afterthought, something that gets uh, added on at the end of a study. Uh, this overly biological view of the human species has also led some conservationists past and present to endorse eugenic measures, to call for various forms of human population control, policies that, as we well know, have led to enormous human suffering in many places. While such policies were and are supported by only a small minority of conservationists, and I do want to emphasize that, that support has alienated many potential allies of the movement and continues to do so. Uh, the, the reputation, I think, is far greater than the number of people who have actually endorsed those policies and the reputation has been extremely damaging and alienating. Fortunately, uh, the community-led conservation movement, which began in Southern Africa in the 1980s and is now thriving worldwide, presents a compelling alternative to the top-down uh, simplistic strategies that the modern conservation movement has historically embraced. The practitioners of community-led conservation, many of whom are reviving and adapting traditional conservation strategies, know what many in the modern conservation movement have forgotten. Uh, they know that conservation is about more than preventing extinction. It's about protecting complexity, which means protecting connections among species, between species and their habitats, and perhaps most importantly, uh, between humans and other species. So the way forward, as I see it, lies in a marriage of old and new with the financial and technical support of international conservation institutions, public and private, community-led conservation can acquire the reach and power needed to protect life on earth from the global threats that we all face. So thank you, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you. That was an excellent uh, introduction to the book. Um, so since we didn't say that in the beginning, just for the people in the audience, so we would like you to also come with uh, questions uh, to Michelle. So what you can do is just indicate in the chat that you have a question, uh, and uh, we will get to you. So uh, just to start with, I mean, you, you, I think you describe well in a quite compelling way, you know, working as a journalist, uh, the methods uh, and the tools that you bring with you into this process of, of writing this book then. And you describe this meeting with scholarship of different types. So in this case, environmental humanities uh, also. So could you say something more specific about concepts, methods, uh, things in environmental humanities uh, that you found particularly useful? Mm. Because it was more of a, a like overarching uh, approach to environmental humanities you described. So I'd be curious, you know, can, you know, some more concrete things there. Yeah, some more concrete things. Um, well, as I said, I, I just, I have uh, in, in, over the course of my career, I have my appreciation for the environmental humanities has increased, and I and I think the field has has developed and strengthened, um, you know, over the past decades. Um, and I I appreciate the 
attention to how I think some of the recent writing about extinction and how extinction is perceived in different cultures, um, how it has been perceived historically in different cultures has been, was and is very helpful to my thinking about the history of conservation and how, um, how the movement's effectiveness has varied over time and, and some, of the, some of the attitudes it has had to confront and combat in the societies in which it's operated. Um, and I think that, uh, again, that the attention of the humanities to human complexity, to cultural complexity, to historical complexity has really helped in my, um, my critique of the environmental movement. So, you know, I, I came into it, as, as I said, and I think many, many conservation activists or would-be conservation activists have this vague sense, oh, I think that there was something, there's something very dark in conservation history, um, but uh, I, I live in the present, so I'm not gonna deal with that. You know, and, and I think that the environmental humanities attention to that and, and it's, its attention to the details of that, how, how did it play out? Who was responsible? Why um, not, and not just, you know, a collection of individuals, Individual stories about people who had had, you know, reprehensible attitudes, but as a looking at it systematically, why it might be particularly rife in the conservation movement, apart from the society in which the conservation movement operated. All of that um, granular work has been very useful to me in, in trying to understand exactly why this is a problem in the conservation movement and why it continues to be so. I hope that makes sense. So you described having a, a background in biology before you went into journalism. And I know that quite a few of our environmental history colleagues also come from biology, which is kind of an interesting trajectory then. So what do you yeah. think uh, this background contributed for you? Well, I think uh, I think it gave me, I, I you know, every time I, I joke that I biology just helps me know where to look things up. <laughs> I don't. You know, I don't remember exactly uh, how DNA replication works, but I, I do know where to find out. Um, and it, it gave me a real, I think, uh, quite a, a deep familiarity with the culture of science, how scientists think, um, and, and what some of their blind spots are. Um, I mean, and I see that over and over again, um, when they, when, in especially in in, uh, in among professional conservation, professional conservationists and conservation groups who are trained to think biologically, as I mentioned, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll spend inordinate amounts of time figuring out what a species needs and then think, oh, and then the humans will just, you know, we'll just put this information out there and the humans will be shocked and they'll, they'll do something about it when, <laughs> you know, we, we really need at least as much time spent on the human aspect of conservation um, as we do on the scientific aspect. Um, that said, I think you know what what scientifically minded conservationists has accomplished is enormously useful. Um, so yeah, an understanding of an understanding of basic scientific principles is very important, but an understanding of the culture of science, I think, is at has been at least as important in my work. So we have some questions in the chat now. Uh, mm -hmm. So Verity wanted to know about your 
journalistic, what do you call them, bad habits and good habits, you know, the, <laughs> the pros and cons of your background, you know, what, what do you consider those to be? Yes, I thought I might get a question about that. Um, so, yeah, as I said, you know, I, I, I make no apologies for journalism. It's, it's a messy field and getting messier. Um, so I, I have, you know, I have amazing, talented, thoughtful colleagues. And then I have some people who I wish I didn't have to consider colleagues. Uh, but I, I would say that um, the good things are, as I mentioned, we do, you know, we do learn to do quite rigorous research, um, including at times archival and historical research. Um, most of that said, most of our research is, you know, with with living people and and um, and with you know with events that are still unfolding. And I actually, in this process, really enjoyed what I came to think of as the process of reporting on the past. You know, going to somewhere where an event might have taken place a hundred years ago or more than a hundred years ago and trying to figure out how to make that as vivid as um, an on the scene report from an unfolding event. Um, and there were all kinds of little tricks that, that I learned from historians and from my fellow journalists um, to try to do that. And I found um, when I could not, excuse me, when I could not interview my my quote unquote sources uh, because they've passed away. I, I found archival work surprisingly useful in in getting to know people. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. I mean, you can find amazing information in archives, but also just sitting with people's personal letters. And unfortunately, the, the historians of the future will miss out on this with us. But but seeing their handwriting, um, seeing you know how they treated the the paper that they worked on, all of that just gives you a sense of, of them as living individuals. Um, bad habits, um, I am. I had to learn quickly how to become an organizer, uh, much more organized about my citations. <laughs> um, because we're used to turning things around very quickly and we don't, you know, we, we attribute um, our sources, but we don't cite them formally often. Um, so I just had to learn to be much more um, conscientious about that. And uh, um, and then I think I know, I know that's more of a practical problem, but I think in, the, in a larger way, journalists are trained to think in anecdotes um, because we are always trying to make things interesting to you know the person on the train who's reading our story on their phone. Um, and, and so we are trained to think in story, in anecdotes. And I had to really take those, I had to, learn to think a bit more like a historian and think, okay, what does that mean? What's the larger picture? What's the, you know, what's the larger picture for that person? What's the larger picture for this movement, for the society it's taking place in? And, and that was a, a long process of, uh, that I had to have a lot of patience with myself um, about to, to, get, to get beyond the, the news of the day training, you know, get out the story, get to talk about what happened, even though I was never a daily reporter, but there's still that urge, you know, to, to just get it out there as quickly as possible and take the time to really understand a little bit more about what it, what it meant. Um, and then I think just in a, um, as a transition from a journalist to a book author, any kind of book author, um, I had to almost I, I joked that I had learned to boil any thought I had down to 800 words and I had to almost, you know, let it, uh, let it, it, you know, sit in the water and expand a little bit so that I would know, <laughs> um, so that, that I could understand, you know, what else might be there. Um, 
but that was all very you know, sometimes painful, but but always interesting and, and an exciting process, exciting transition. Well, thinking about those narratives and stories then and, and have, you know, you encountered those stories and then you tell those stories as a journalist, but as an author and as a historian, right? So you're, you're digging up these things um, from the past. I was wondering how you ended up with the stories you did. I mean, you said there's some of them that are very well known. Um, so people like Rachel Carson or Aldo Leopold or William Hornaday, I mean, standard figures, but some who were not. And so I was curious how you, was it just that somebody popped up in a document somewhere <laughs> and, and, and you, you got interested and then you dig down in a rabbit hole um, <laughs> or if they were suggested to you by people or, you know, how, mm. how did you come up with these? Yeah. Well, there was definitely some serendipity involved for sure. Um, I mean, there were some people, as I said, that were just obvious from the beginning. I, I knew I wanted to show how they fit in to the larger um, conservation story. That, that said, there were many quite well-known people who I didn't, I chose not to focus on. They, they came up in the course of different chapters, but I, they were not pivotal characters in my book, E.O. Wilson, um, John Muir, he turns up, but he briefly, um, and, and that was in part a conscious decision because I wanted to elevate and, and show um, some of the other voices who you don't hear from as often, but who I saw as having quite pivotal roles. Rosalie Edge was a great example of that. Um, and Julian Huxley, who I think is well-known in, in Europe, less well-known here. Um, Huxley name is certainly well-known. Um, but he, he's not as well known, he's well known as a, a scientist, but not as a conservationist. And I think he, what he represented, the, the international turn in, in the modern conservation movement is something that we don't think a lot about. Um, and it, it is the source of a lot of the, the tragedies and problems in conservation. And so I wanted to, to really spend some time on that. So, so some of my choices were were instrumental in a sense. I wanted them to to play a certain role, but I also uh, they almost always turned out to be fascinating people as well. So, for instance, Julian. I mean, Julian Huxley. I found exhausting to spend time with, but I also found him very interesting um, because he had so many he had so many preoccupations and, and interests um, that he was he was fun. And of course, he comes from a family that is you know been immersed in in science since the time of Darwin. So he was great to write about. Um, so yeah, it was a combination of, of serendipity, of, of thinking about how I wanted the, the narrative to, to unfold, what points I wanted to make along the way. And then then a little bit of, um, I think there were a couple of people who I thought I might, that might pl play main characters, but, but I eventually chose not to have them in. And, and some people I added in um, rather late in the process as, as the narrative took shape. So in that narrative, then, do you see it going kind of in, in one direction? I mean, you've talked about pivots, so mm -hmm. so that it, it, it goes and then somebody changes it to a different direction, or I guess, do you, do you see it as kind of splintering and going in different directions um, at the same time? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there was really, as I said, if I had known how difficult this might we, would be, I might not have taken it on. I mean, there was, there was, of course, a process of simplification of this incredibly 
you know, complex worldwide movement that that has splintered and become more complex. Um, that said, I think there is a trajectory from uh, the late 1800s drive by elite sportsmen to protect individual, often charismatic mammals like the American bison to a more ecological sensibility um, in the mid 20th century. Um, and then, then there was a major split, I think, between conservation and environmentalism um, that remains today, even though many members of the public think of those two terms as, as interchangeable. Um, and then I think there was a uh, another pivot point um, when the movement decided to go international and operate often in colonized territory. Um, and then I think in the 1980s, there's been, there's been another turning point with the understanding of how damaging um, some of that international work and some of the work in North America and Europe has been as well. And, and a understanding of that the, the, that grassroots management has really been ignored by the by conservation institutions in an effort to bring uh, community conservation back into um, or or into I don't know if it was ever part of but into the conservation establishment and trying to bring those threads together. So there there have been splits and there have been connections and reconnections. Um, but I do see that there's I think my book does make an argument for an overarching. Um, movement toward a more ecological sensibility with the connection between humans and other species becoming the last, the most belated <laughs> realization. Um, and one that I think happily we're seeing, we're seeing today, I actually think, I mean, this book, I often, when I told people I was friends and family that I was writing this book, they would all, always say, oh, how depressing, <laughs> you know, oh, oh, that must be very sad. You're writing about extinction. And I would say, well, you know, my publisher is making me put extinction in the subtitle, but actually, you know, this is the, there are many, there have been many successes in the conservation movement that you don't hear about. And I think the conservation movement is headed in the right direction. I mean, the, the right direction for protecting other species and the right direction for, um, for for humanity, you know, for having a more inclusive vision of, of conservation. So I I don't think we're moving fast enough, but I think the trajectory is is in a very rough general sense moving in the right direction. So I think the, the distinction and the nuances between the two concepts, conservation and environmentalism, are really important and it's, it's we need a language also for talking about that because we can't have yes. a, a meaningful i think use of those concepts if you don't know uh, and understand where they come from and where what they imply yeah. uh, so i'd like to bring in one of the questions that adam had here that's um you know more or less directly on that so you know starting with teddy roosevelt then being remembered as a towering figure in con uh, conservation uh, but also being one of the people most responsible for drawing a wedge between mainstream conservation and the animal welfare movement, which at the time addressed both domestic and wild animal welfare and uh, conservation. Uh, and it's also been criticized for military belligerence and imperialism. So could you say something about how conservation with a gun and this, this imperial mindset transformed and distorted the movement's ideas about wildlife and wilderness and led to a lethal management approach as opposed to the gentler perspective animal welfare based 
early wildlife conservationists? Mm -hmm. Thank you for that question. Um, I'm familiar with Janet Davis's book, and um, and the early welfare movement was one of the one of the threads I felt like I could not go down without um, you know without muddying my own already complex narrative. But I did find what I and so you know I didn't look at it as deeply as as other as other aspects of the movement or other sub subthreads of the conservation movement. Um, but I found it fascinating and and I know from her book and and elsewhere that that um, animal welfare activists were quite active uh, in protecting the bison and they were quite shocked by, uh, the cruelty of market hunters to the bison from a welfare perspective, while Teddy Roosevelt and William Hornaday and, and their, their allies were more, their concern for the bison was much, you know, I think genuine, full of genuine admiration, but, but much more self-interested in that they saw the bison as a symbol of, the bison hunt as a symbol of masculinity, of white masculinity and, and national pride. And that was their main motivation for, for, um, protecting the species. And so I think, you know, as I mentioned, I think there are elitists, the, the elitist roots of conservation in those elite hunting circles has been very damaging because they were so, you know, explicitly dismissive of, of subsistence hunters um, and other people who were dependent on these species for, for sustenance. But they were also dismissive of this kind of, you know, what they saw as this kind of emotional, soft-hearted, attitude toward um, domesticated and non-domesticated species. And I think that was a real, I think both of those biases were, um, were really damaging to their own cause. And we still see that split today. I mean, you still see, um, and I think they're, they're, I mean, I think they're, they're, perhaps there will always be tension between people who, who are, ethical sport hunters, conservation-minded sport hunters, and people who are um, welfare activists who are opposed to uh, all sport hunting. However, I think there is much more room for common ground than you see today. And I think some of the roots of that, that polarization and, and really ingrained conflict go back to those early days when animal welfare um, activists were, were dismissed as kind of, you know, as I said, a bunch of soft-hearted, mostly women, um, though I know that some of the leaders were not, were, were men as well. Um, and so I think, yeah, I, I think Teddy Roosevelt carries a lot of the blame for that. Well, in, in thinking about those arguments, I guess, of why you wouldn't kill um, the bison, I think, I wonder about the economic argument or the economic values um, inherent in this. And I was thinking about that because Anand had a comment about um, economic valuations uh, tending to be one place that um, conservationists bring in humanities-based work. So in other words, you mm. say, oh, here's some values that this species has. Um, so I was wondering in your work, if you see the roots of that as well in these conservationists. So um, yeah, do they bring in different types of values? Or are they concerned about only some types like an economic type or a, a you know biodiversity type at different phases in your story interesting um yeah i think even from the beginning uh 
conservation activists were quite savvy in, in the arguments they presented to different audiences. Um, I think, and this is completely anecdotal, but I think if you dig down deep enough into the psyche of, of any conservationist, you find a little kid who um, didn't quite feel that they fit in with their fellow humans and found some kind of comfort in other species. Um, there's a large number of conservationists who experienced some kind of loss as a kid and found comfort in you know, going down to the, to the creek and watching birds. Um, Hornaday was one of those as, as you know, blustery and, and, uh, and really, you know, kind of reprehensible as he was as an adult. He, he, he wrote quite movingly of, of the comfort he, has, he had found as an orphan teenager on the plains. So, so that's a long way of saying that I think their own justification was always emotional and almost always emotional, but they did present, um, I think the economic arguments early on were, were not that common. Um, the bison, you know, I, the bison was protected after it was no longer, uh, there, there were so few bison that there was, there was really not a market any longer. So in a way it was, okay, well now we can protect it now that there's no economic value to it. So there was almost, uh, conservationists might've made that, might've made the argument, oh, well perhaps we could restart a market in furs, but that was secondary to their arguments about we need to protect the species as a, as a matter of national pride and as a, because we need to protect white masculinity. Um, Later on, you know, I, I think there has been in recent years, as I'm sure many of you are familiar with, there has been a, a, a drive to try to place economic value on some of the intangible ecosystem services that conservation provides. And, and I think that has been greeted with a lot of hesitation by conservationists, um, even though you know, I think that I, I certainly hear the argument by people who, by people who support economic valuation that, well, you know, yes, it's imperfect. You can never capture the entire value of a species, but, but right now we value some of these services at zero. So we better, you know, we better put some, it, better to have a number on it than, than no number at all. Um, but I think that the conservation movement has been historically wary actually um, of economic arguments. Um, and, and I think that that has, in some ways that has been unfortunate because um, when you are working with communities who depend on, um, who depend on other species and, and depend directly on their landscapes for sustenance, um, you know, they, they aren't going around putting, you know, for the most part, they aren't going around putting specific dollar values on their, on their landscapes, but they, they do have material, basic material needs that need to be attended to <laughs> before they can uh, think about cons uh, conserving species for in the longer term. And I saw this quite vividly in, in Namibia when I visited their community conservation network that's been in place for 30 years now. Um, people were extremely willing to think long-term and even to make some, some personal sacrifices, personal economic sacrifices um, on behalf of other species, because they, I think, you know, that we all have a land ethic at some level, but, but they also appreciated and needed the 
economic benefits that came with conservation. They needed to have a share in that before they were willing to participate. They didn't need it. They didn't need to be getting rich. They didn't need it to solve all their problems, but they needed to have um, some economic benefit. I hope that answers your question. Many ways to go about to think about that. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's a complex landscape. And I'm, I'm wondering also if you could uh, broaden the picture of the, the contemporary environmentalist and conservationist movement. I mean, you, you describe in a way this trajectory that leads up to a situation today where you more or less have two sides, you know, you present. But uh, I think also if you broaden to more European sense, I mean, there's a particularly, I would say, the radical environmentalist and mm -hmm. activist movement, there's a, there's a much broader spectrum. So where would you place these movements? In part, I'm thinking, you know, the more kind of the radical activists that, mm -hmm. you know, well, being in Norway, we've had a fair amount of like whaling, uh, anti-whaling actions, yeah. Greenpeace, and, and even more exactly. radical uh, Sea Shepherd and so Shepherd, on. Yeah. Uh, but you also have this strand that's, you know, dark green, more towards, you know, almost eco-fascism, which is yes. something many people have discussed. So, so where would you place these in this landscape and, you know, connected to this, uh, you know, the roots then of the conservation movement? Yeah, and I mean, I think both of those, both of those related strands are, are fascinating. And again, uh, it was something I couldn't look at didn't feel that I could look at deeply in my narrative. Um, but I, I would say, um, I mean, where I see them fitting in is, is on the, the far side of the, of the, um, well, I'm, I'm gonna, I think the, the dark green, the eco-fascist strain, um, which certainly, you know, has, has a long history, um, I think that that is the, the, the most extreme outcome of conservation's um, over, overly biological view of humanity. Um, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna think, of, think of humanity, or well, we're not gonna think of ourselves <laughs> as simplistic, but we're gonna think of the rest of humanity as, you know, as simplistic as other animals. Um, and we're gonna go so far with that, that we're gonna, you know, uh, drop right over into into fascistic um, uh, mindsets, um, and you know we see that we see that today. It's alive today, as as you well know, um, and and you know you see it expressed. I think Dave Foreman in the 1980s was maybe the most. Um, he was not. I I don't think he would put himself in that category, and I wouldn't put him in there either. But he certainly made some statements that uh, could have come out of the mouth of an eco-fascist about, um, about, you know, I mean, one of his most notorious statements was about, oh, well, we should perhaps just let the famine in Ethiopia go, you know, maybe that would be good for the planet. And, um, and, you know, fortunately, he was, he was, you know, roundly condemned for it. But, but to him, he, you know, he, he lived in a, in a world where that was not so that was not so um, so out of line, um, and as and then the direct action tradition. I I really wish that I I could have um, explored more. I, I see that more though as an outgrowth of environmentalism. Um, I I think that 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 
tradition came out of the more urban um, tradition that began in the 1960s, uh, partly with Rachel Carson, and I mean, here in North America with Rachel Carson with Earth Day. Um, and then, and I think there would, that was, there was a concern for protecting other species that came less out of, we've lived alongside of these species, we've hunted them, and it, it came more out of a, we've enjoyed looking at these species and we want to protect them at all costs. Um, there was no, you know, in, in those direct action um, traditions, there's no, oh, okay, well, maybe there's room for sustainable use. It's, <laughs> it's you know, we're gonna protect these, the, these animals um, from all hunting and we're gonna let them live in peace. So, so that was why I didn't look deeply at, at those movements, but I think that they're, um, I think those movements, not ecofascism, but those movements have played an important role. And um, there's a whole other book, of course, many books to be written about what they've done. Well, you brought up Dave Foreman there, and I was thinking about rewilding mm -hmm. and the whole rewilding movement. And then that as a conservation strategy, because what you see in conservation and conservation science, or at least what I've seen in the last 20 years is this, this rise of rewilding as a thing that they say that they're doing whether or not they're actually <laughs> yeah. doing something that you know is different than what they used to do um with other types of of, of kind of restoration or reintroduction projects well we could have that debate but they yes. say they're doing it right so they say they're yes. doing rewilding and so i was curious how, how you yeah where where that fits in in your in your thinking here of this kind of movement of conservation and if it's if you see it as a as a good or positive development or not, I mean, partly because I'm thinking through here, the, you know, the way you defined at the beginning, then um, conservation as being when people are caring about things that they don't come in contact with on a daily basis, mm -hmm. because a lot of rewilders, as I see it, are exactly that, right? They're urbanists, mm -hmm. they, they live in cities, and they say, oh, look, let's rewild that place over there. <laughs> you know, it might be a place they go to, you know, on holiday or something um, because, oh, the animals should live there, but but not the same conversation doesn't necessarily happen with the people who actually live there right? deal with those things. So, um, so yeah, so I was, I was curious what your thoughts are there. Yeah, gosh, this is, a, I would love to have this conversation um, over drinks sometime. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, there's a lot to be said. I, I work as an editor um, at The Atlantic. Um, I edit stories for a series called Planet, and uh, I'm working with a, with a Scotland-based writer right now on some of the tensions around re rewilding in Scotland. Um, and I, I know that rewilding in the UK is an especially hot topic right now. Um, so let's see where to start. Uh, I should I should say I, I kind of grew up with the thinking around or, or watching the conservation movement um, think through different iterations of rewilding um, because the the um, Wildlands Network, which was founded by Michael Soule in the 1990s, um, the founder of the field of conservation biology, the rewilding network. I, I think the strength of it and and perhaps what what rewilders have in or, or hope to do is to is to do a more ecologically minded 
restoration or reintroduction, you know, that they're, they're, they're thinking of themselves as, oh, we're not just, quote unquote, just, you know, um, restoring a single stream bank or, or, you know, restoring an endangered species to a particular landscape. We are part of a larger ecological network where we are, you know, um, helping restore a larger landscape where species can migrate or where there can be a more meaningful, um, you know, a more meaningful ecological system that is able to operate uh, without human, so much human caretaking. And I think that is, that's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to see more ecological thinking happening in conservation. Um, however, you know, the Wildlands Network, if you look back at some of their early, um, their early proposals, you know, they would, they, there was a lot of sophisticated ecological thinking. And then when it got to how are we going to implement this, it was like, oh, well, you know, uh, people will be happy to have this. <laughs> and, you know, there just wasn't, it was just a, uh, just an extreme, um, extremely dismissive or, or sort of blase attitude about how the people who actually lived in these places would react, whether they were, you know, um, white cattle ranchers or whether they were indigenous people. And, and you know, we we're talking here about the um, about the Rocky Mountains of North America, where there were, you know, it's, there are many diverse human communities and all of whom had loyalties to the land, some of which stretched back millennia. So it was not, they, they were thinking this would be simple, you know, that they would just sort of approach people who were uh, ready to retire and they would buy their land and, and you know, eventually build a, a system of reserves. And it turned out to be nowhere near that simple because there was a political reaction even to the idea of the wildlands network you know oh my god this is this is the this is the un black helicopters heading to our region um and and it really you know it really hobbled it never practically went anywhere uh, it was it was useful i think as a concept to the conservation movement but it never went anywhere i think people of the conservation movement has gotten more sophisticated about human communities, but, but, you know, we still see things like E.O. Wilson's half earth proposal, which, you know, E.O. Wilson was a, um, you know, may he rest in peace. And, and I, I respect his work in many ways, but the book half earth was almost as dismissive um, as the early wildlands network proposals of the human piece of <laughs> setting aside half the planet and, and you know people came in after his book was written and, and kind of said oh well you know we're not talking about national parks here we're talking about you know some kind of conservation on half the planet but that's not really what he was saying <laughs> especially early on um, and, and he did not have a sophisticated vision of, of how humans would be part of that picture would play a positive role on that half of the planet wherever that half was located. So yeah, rewilding is a term that gets a lot of things swept into it and under it. Uh, and, and like I said, I would love to discuss it more, but I, I think it is seen as a cure-all by many urban environmentalists, many urban conservationists. And it's, uh, I hope they will spend a lot more time as people, you know, with, pe with the people who live in the places um, that they hope to conserve because those people are going to be the ones who really do protect it. Yeah, I think that's those are very good points. And I also hope that we'll we'll have a chance to discuss this <laughs> or a drink sometime. Uh, maybe. <laughs> 
hopefully, uh, to bring in another big concept. Um, what do you think has been the role of religion then in this this history that you looked at? I mean, Victor asked a question specifically about the Laudato Si movement uh, and its impact mm. on the environmental movement. But I think you can also ask a larger question about religion in general, how, mm -hmm. how it's influenced uh, the conservation movement and the development to today. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't talk about it very explicitly in my book. Um, but I, it was on my mind as I was researching, and I, I found it interesting that how few of the people who I, um, who were the main characters in my narrative, and and even most of the minor characters, how few of them expressed traditional religious belief. Now, I mean, I know that there are there is a great deal of conservation work being done by people of faith, um, but from my study of the you know of the particular strain of the conservation movement that i followed um there there was not in in fact i would say that that love of other species were it, in some ways was a stand-in for traditional religion in most cases um you know Aldo leopold for instance was never a churchgoer um but i would say he was he was a man of faith in many ways, just not of explicit religious faith. Um, and then we have in the, in North America, there's of course the transcendentalist tradition, which has some roots in Christianity, but but is so you know not a not a traditional uh, religion uh, that from you know espoused by Emerson and Thoreau and and those kind of figures who are seen as as fathers of the environmental movement. Um, so. I I think it's uh, I think it's interesting. It's not more of a uh, it was not more of a theme in in what I found, and I think it's another untapped in some ways untapped constituency. I know that there you know every once in a while you see a, a news story where where some journalist has discovered this idea like wow there could be green Christians. You know? <laughs> it's like well there's a long tradition of that. <laughs> it's happening, and but I think that there's a lot more to be done in terms of conservation institutions and environmental institutions partnering with faith institutions um, that do take their role as stewards seriously and that you know whatever you know however whatever vocabulary their particular faith uses to talk about their role vis-a-vis um, -vis other species uh, there's a lot of room for partnership Good. So we're getting close to our end, and I had saved Greg's question for the end here because you know he points mm -hmm. out you studied the history. Uh, it's quite clear from the talk and from the book that conservationists did mistake. They made mistakes and they did things for the wrong reasons in the past. So maybe we can agree on that. Now, so if you were addressing a professional uh, conservation organization today, what advice would you have for them? Oh gosh. Well, I've done some of this. Um, I, I don't have an elevator speech prepared. Um, so let me think of where I'd start. I mean, I would, I think my first advice, a piece of advice would be to, to um, get more familiar with the history of the movement. Uh, I think one of the oversights or some, many of the Many of the recurring oversights of the conservation movement come from the fact that conservationists themselves, because in some cases, because of that scientific training that most of them have, 
they tend to be either interested in evolutionary time, you know, deep time, or understandably the emergency that they're facing. You know, they're coming into these situations where it's like, you know, we have six months to save the vaquita or, or to, you know, they're, they, they see themselves as, as, as first responders and, and in some ways they are. And so I think it's understandable that they don't take a lot of time to understand the history of their movement the human history of their movement, but I think it's so important because the conservation movement has created a great, it has made serious mistakes and created a great deal of resentment in some of the places that are real strongholds for other species, um, for human communities too. Um, and, and there's no way to be successful without understanding that legacy um, and that fear and distrust. Um, you know, so if, uh, and so I would say that is the first, that would be the first step. Um, and then I think the, the second, perhaps large broad take home I would, I would advise is, is just to understand um, that, that one of the failures of the conservation movement has been to ignore the importance of, a, of the, the the bottom of the power structure, so to speak, the grassroots level, and and to default, again, perhaps because of people's scientific training, to default to top-down centralized authority, and to be aware of that bias within the movement and perhaps within yourself as an individual, and to say, okay, what alternatives are there? Other than that, other than establishing a national park whose boundaries we may or may not be able to patrol effectively, and and is that do we want to do that morally anyway? Probably not. Um, is is there an alternative? Is there a model we can use where the power is more devolved? Because that has been one of the systemic problems. Um, I, I write in my book about about oh, I guess my my like. 10 word take home would be the tragedy of the commons is not inevitable <laughs> because, because I write in my book a little bit about, about Eleanor Ostrom's work um, debunking the idea of, of the inevitability of the tragedy of the commons. And, and one of the reasons I did that is because I, on a, not on a daily basis, but probably on a weekly basis, I hear some conservationists refer uncritically to the tragedy of the commons as a way of, 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 you know, kind of dismissing humans' ability to play a positive role in the in the ecosystem, and I think, well, you know, you've lost the battle. <laughs> like, first thing you need to do is is to know that there's a there's a whole that there have now been generations of work saying that 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 is not the case, and that there are ways to avoid it. Um, so, so yeah, know know that there's know that there's hope for humanity as as conservation. You know, as we can be successful conservationists, and that. Uh, you don't have to default to top-down solutions out of out of fear, out of fear of humanity. I think those are very wise words, and uh, we're so glad that we got to talk to you, um, Michelle Nyhouse, about her beloved beasts fighting for life in an age of extinction, um, which is with W.W. Norton uh, in 2021. So thank you very much, Michelle, for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the great questions. I was—I don't think I got to read everybody's comments, but um, uh, I hope I will have time to. It's such a, a wonderful group with uh, a diverse perspective. So I appreciate you having me.